Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Dirty Steel Toe Boots. Uh, I think it may have been a while since you heard from us because uh, you may have heard we've been a little busy. Uh, September 9th, President Biden announced uh, that he is directing or had directed at the time OSHA to develop this thing called an emergency temporary standard regarding COVID-19 in the workplace. And now it being November 5th, we now have it. So I am joined today by my uh, friend, my colleague, uh, and the head of our uh, practice group at Ogletree, my friend, Eric Hobbs. Eric, welcome back. Hey, Philip. Thanks so much for inviting me back. Well, it is a busy time, that's for sure. Well, it is. And I think you were my uh, my first guest on the podcast. And the topic we discussed was, who is OSHA? So I think, <laughs> I think now everybody knows who OSHA is, even right. if they didn't know before. Right. I think it's important for our listeners, let's let's start off with a little bit of the identification here, uh, because we talked then about who is OSHA, so I think now we need to say, well, what is this thing called an ETS or this Emergency Temporary Standard? Because I want to make sure we give our listeners some, some accurate information here, because I myself, I know you too, I've already read some of the popular media, and, and they just don't seem to quite get it right. So what is an ETS? It's called an ETS, meaning Emergency Temporary Standard, because it's designed to address an emergency that's temporary, or at least it's designed to address in a temporary way an emergency. I don't know what the intention was of of Congress when it used that term, but it's a term that comes straight out of the OSHA Act, and it's a provision that OSHA takes advantage of very infrequently. This is only the the third time in its history, and the last two times have been in the last six months. Um, It it allows OSHA to put in place a standard that usually takes years to develop, but on short terms to address something that is emergent, it's problematic, that poses a grave danger to the workforce, and that can last no longer than six months before it's substituted by something permanent or or just dies of its own weight. Is that your understanding too, Philip? It it is, and so let's talk about that because you mentioned the OSHA Act. That's the the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, that's the law that created OSHA. It also, at the same time, created the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission that reviews OSHA citations and proposed penalties. But it also created, as you mentioned, in Section 6C, this process for having an ETS or an emergency temporary standard and uh, as long as OSHA can demonstrate that there is a grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards in the workplace, and its ETS is necessary to protect employees, then it has that procedure available. But what's the most important part? You mentioned that it's quicker than regular rulemaking. What gets missed or what gets skipped here? Yeah, you know, all the important stuff would be would be my quick answer. Right? I mean, when when OSHA goes through the process of putting in place, uh, you know, a, a regular standard, I don't want to call it a permanent standard because nothing's permanent, but you know, a regular standard, the kind that we're we're normally dealing with as employers and as OSHA practitioners, 
Um, it takes years, literally, to research the issue, to uh, find out what the science says or the safety science says about the particular hazard being addressed. Uh, it seeks comments from the public over a long period of time. Those comments submitted in writing and then usually at hearings under oath. And then, you know, it kind of crawls back into its cave, the agency does, and, and puts all that together and comes out with Humpty Dumpty. Um, and, you know, that, that's a, it's a tedious process. It's an important process. And it's a process that uh, involves a lot of input by a lot of sources to the process and therefore to the result. And you don't get any of that really in the case of an ETS. And that's, you know, that, that's problematic for the agency, I should say, as well as for the employer community. Right? Well, you mentioned the Humpty Dumpty. Uh, this Humpty Dumpty is 490 pages long. So one of my questions for you is, did the breadth and the depth of this ETS surprise you when it came out yesterday? But to be frank with you, the length of it surprised me because I think I thought it was going to be longer. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the standard itself, the ETS itself takes only relatively few pages. I mean, maybe, maybe 10. I haven't counted them. The rest is what's called preamble. And you know, the preamble is attached to every newly proposed regulation whether it's a regulation promulgated by OSHA or another federal agency. And it explains the agency's rationale for doing what it's doing. Um, and you know, OSHA clearly knew going into this process that it was going to be subject to legal challenges. And so the preamble was designed and is designed in every case, among other things, to protect against a court looking at the standard and saying, this is bad news. We think it's not justified as a matter of law. And we're going to tell OSHA they can't enforce it. So OSHA anticipated that. And I therefore thought that the explanation, the defense, if you want to call it that, of the ETS in the preamble would be longer. What do we have? We had 600 and blah, blah, blah pages for the ETS that was published for healthcare back in June. Uh, I, I expected something akin to that, even though I realized that the extent of this ETS is not as great as the extent of the healthcare ETS. But it's a, it's a, it was a sign to me, even 480 pages, of course, is a sign to me that OSHA knows that it's under the microscope and that employers are waiting to, to pounce on it, if you will, to challenge it as being overreach or unfounded. Well, let's talk about that because the, the OSHA Act itself, sticking with the law, uh, says uh, that there is a methodology or a procedure by which someone who is not happy with an ETS, for whatever reason, can file a petition for review but it doesn't go to a district court. It doesn't go to a trial court. It goes into our appellate circuit courts. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? And that, that's unique to OSHA standards, I believe, right? I don't know of any other regulations that are subject to immediate review by the Court of Appeals. Do you? I, no, I don't. But I will. And I'll tell you that this whole thing was for me interesting because I had a few bets out there. I actually thought <laughs> the first, just bear with me. I thought the first challenge would be the 11th Circuit, which of course is Florida, Georgia, Alabama, or the 5th Circuit or the DC Circuit. But I lost the bet because the first one, which was filed today, was in the 8th Circuit. Yeah, that was the least of those I expected. And that's not fair, not the least, that's terrible. Uh, it was the last of those, not the least of those I expected. I, I, you know, almost always the case that plaintiff's lawyers, you know, and by that I mean lawyers for the party who, is, who are filing the challenges in this case, seek out the most favorable forum. It's often easier to do when you're, you're bringing your challenge in the district or the trial court. 
because district judges have reputations for doing and not doing certain things procedurally and substantively. It's really tough when you have to forum shop, as they call it, among circuit court of appeals, the circuits of the court of appeals, because um, the, 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 there's not that kind of precedent, if you will, that district court judges have for acting in a particular way when this kind of an action is filed, because it's filed so rarely. So a part of me was saying, I have no flipping idea in, in which circuit the first or second or third or 15th challenge might be filed. But I must say the eighth, the eighth did surprise me. I thought it'd be the fifth maybe, or the DC circuit, um, which is kind of the circuit with, with national jurisdiction, if you will. How about you? What were, you thought the 11th maybe? Any others come to mind? I did. Well, the one I was absolutely certain it would not be is the ninth circuit. I did not expect <laughs> that would happen. <laughs> so, it's known to be the, the more, the more government friendly circuits. There's no question about that. Oh, that was so well said. Exactly. <laughs> well, one well, I think today was filed in my circuit, the seventh circuit, correct? I think I heard today that there was one in the seventh as well. So uh, they will line up. And what's interesting about that, of course, is you see them filed in multiple circuit courts raises a question I've heard all day today from clients. And I know you have too, which is uh, really twofold. Number one, do these petitions have a chance? And number two, will there be a stay of the ETS while the legal issues are sorted out? Let's take those in reverse order. Is there an automatic stay here? Certainly not automatic. I mean, the, the party filing the challenge has to prove to the court that a stay is justified or injuncted, an injunction, like a temporary restraining order is justified. And the bar for that is, is very high. First of all, most, most courts of appeal and the circuit court circuits of the court of appeals don't get requests like that very often. So they're not accustomed to applying that standard as often as district courts are. But it's also a pretty dramatic or drastic relief that a court can offer. Beginning to consider a question of that kind, Philip, you got to think it's an up, it's going to be an uphill battle because the remedy is significant and severe, and because the courts are not accustomed to getting requests of that kind very often. So well, and therein lies the the issue of if you have multiple petitions filed in multiple circuit courts of appeals, that increase the chances that there will be a stay, or will everything be consolidated in the D.C. Circuit, perhaps? Well, I mean, my, my own suspicion is that the court, the, 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 the circuits will get together and decide whether the cases filed before them ought to be consolidated in a single court. I guess the question in the meantime is whether any of those circuits might decide itself to consider and or to grant injunctive relief. I, I would think that if the circuits are participating in a, in a confab, so to speak, in which they're deciding whether to consolidate the challenges, no court would act on the request for injunctive relief. But but I don't know that. I, we don't Again, we don't see enough of this really to, to know that there's precedent for or against or even a likelihood for or against. Are, are, are you familiar with any? No, and I'll tell you what's interesting is you and I both share uh, several decades, add them together, several decades worth of OSHA experience, but uh, there's not a lot of folks with experience in Section 6C of the OSHA Act, are there? Uh, anywhere, right? Because it's been, it's been acted upon only three times. <laughs> so we will, uh, we'll see how this gets fleshed out in the courts, but let's talk about that timing because, uh, you know, I had a, a, a client ask today, I'm going to run this by you and see your thoughts. I had a client today that said, okay, so we know that these challenges are being filed. We know there may be some good arguments in favor of the petitions, and maybe there's some good arguments in favor of the ETS, but 
We also know that December 5th is looming large as the first compliance deadline under the ETS. If we took a wait and see approach here, Philip, the client said, how long should we wait? And, uh, and I said, Eric, I said, you know, there's no guarantee here, but I said two weeks. I think if there's not a stay entered in the next two weeks in any of these petitions, then you should be well on your way to a December 5th for the first compliance deadline. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's probably a fair guess. Uh, a request for injunctive relief is the first thing taken up by a court under normal proceedings. And, and very often, if, if the, the, the potential need of that injunctive relief is acute, the court will set an evidentiary hearing even within 24, 36, 48 hours. I, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that's going to happen here, but that, those sorts of requests are, are, are treated as urgent. So I think two weeks is, is, is generous, to be frank with you. Hmm. Well, I guess that's another one of those timing issues we shall see. But let's talk about that first deadlines. And, and by the way, we also have a site now. We can actually start. To, we, we OSHA lawyers love our sites to the CFR. So 29 CFR Code of Federal Regulations, that is 1910.501. So the ETS was published today, November 5th. 30 days later after the publication is the, the first set of deadlines. So what are our clients? So what, what does OSHA expect uh, employers to have by then? A lot. I mean, I, I, it's, it's easier to say what OSHA doesn't expect by the fifth than what it does. The first thing that we need to do as employers, if we're subject to the, to the ETS, and in other words, we're talking about employers who are not in healthcare, who have 100 or more employees. Small business is not included, healthcare not included, because healthcare is covered by the first ETS. The first thing we need to do is put together a program the standard tells us, which which essentially addresses all of the things otherwise provided by the standard. Um, so it's going to be a you know relatively comprehensive document we have to have in place that becomes a roadmap first for us to follow in complying, and second for OSHA to follow when it's trying to figure out during an inspection whether we've complied. Yeah, it, it really is a lot, and that's what I want to make sure folks understand is that if you are going to take a wait and see approach, be sure that you know what the expectation is of what you will have in place by the time we get to December 5th. And that, that plan in place, determining the vaccination status of employees, beginning of the record keeping, the notice of positive COVID tests from employees. I'm just reading down the list here. The only one that got pushed back 60 days is the requirement of ensuring employees who are not fully vaccinated are tested at least weekly. Right, that's in that subsection G, right? That's in that, indeed. Now, there's some, I must say, it's a little bit confusing. If you read G and then you go to section M as in Mary 2, double, a Roman numeral double I, it, 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 it appears to say that um, the vaccination process also has to be completed by January 4. And that, frankly, would be consistent with what OSHA has said outside of the rulemaking context, but in its webinars recently, which is that it has it is, it is attempted to align, or I should say the White House has attempted to align the vaccination requirement under the ETS with the vaccination requirement under the CMS regulation, that's Medicare, and the vaccination uh, deadline, I believe, under the uh, executive order for federal contractors. 
but it's not crystal clear by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, matter of fact, uh, several of us in the group were having that conversation just about a half an hour ago. Many things are we're, we're sort of struggling with. I know there's quite a bit of discussion about the uh, use of paid time off. And so I, I'm not going to dig into those weeds yet other than to say and share with our audience today that the, these things take some time to digest. So uh, yeah. don't don't wait. Uh, as you begin to try and understand these requirements. Absolutely. You know, one of them that has, has been a uh, particular interest to clients of mine in that last uh, day and a half here is how to measure that 100 employee threshold. I mean, so many businesses are, are divided for taxation, business production, um, all sorts of, of legitimate legal reasons into either subsidiaries, one might call them, or into sister organizations. You know, you might have a, a parent that operates four or five LLCs, each of which has its own employees. And the question is, do, do we aggregate the employees of those five LLCs because they are all owned by a single parent? What's your view of that, Philip? The headcount issue, I think that that surprised me the most is the part-time employees being counted. I, I think that was just an effort to make sure that they threw as broad a net as possible to capture as many and without having to get to make it too complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think simplicity has been the goal, and it, I think it applies actually in this aggregation test context as well. OSHA in the ETS and in the FAQs has said essentially we're not going to look as as courts would, or even the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission would, to a whole bunch of factors. We OSHA want to know where is the control over safety? Is that control over safety common among the parent and the five LLCs, or does each of the LLCs or three of the five, whatever it might be, because each of them have its own safety management, I guess, for lack of a better term. But even that's kind of squishy, right? I mean, that's a tough, tough thing to determine. Frequently, safety is, a, is, not, is not relegated to one particular person and or to one particular entity. It's a combination of people or entities who have responsibility for it, don't you think? I, I do, and I'm looking up right now. I don't see in the definition section the word squishy, so I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Ocean, Ocean avoids that word. <laughs> when attempting to fend off legal challenges to, <laughs> to its actions. What I thought was interesting too is once you hit 100, then you are the the light turns on and it never goes off, or at least in, as long as the standard is in play. Right, and and it's it's if you hit 100 at any time within the the six month life of the standard. So some employers who right now are kind of on the precipice of 100, or who think they don't have 100 when under the, that test I just described to you, as squishy as it might be, um, think they don't, but are going to wind up discovering that they do, or they do cross that 100 thre uh, employee threshold, all of a sudden they're going to have to catch up quickly because the effective date already will have been upon them in many cases. And it'll be interesting to see how OSHA deals with that. Indeed. So you talked about headcount for the employer, but one particular exclusion that I wanted to focus on, which is the one dealing with employees, not employers, but employees, that employees who work exclusively outside are not covered. What do you make of that? That one caught me a little bit by surprise, although it makes sense to me. I mean, what we did expect to see or what we hoped to see, I guess is a better way to say it, was the exemption or exclusion of remote workers. OSHA did include remote workers as, as an exempted category, but then added this outdoor worker category you make mention of. And I guess the important thing for clients to understand is that for someone to qualify as either remote or outdoor, they have to be 100% outdoor or, or remote. In other words, it can't be that four days a week, the remote worker works at home and one day comes in. 
We can't treat those folks because a majority of their time is remote as being remote for the exemptions purposes. Those folks, because they come in, are not remote, if you will, for purposes of the exemption. Similarly, if, if employees are working outdoors, it's a little bit different, of course, because um, if you're working exclusively outdoors, you, you may very well be working with coworkers, right? Yeah, in, indeed, and, and you have to also pay attention. I mean, the, the FAQ here uh, on what it means to be exclusively outdoors under the ETS, I thought was helpful at least uh, you know, help me at least answer some questions today for clients. And one of the key requirements about working outdoors is that they have to work outdoor during the duration of every workday, except for de minimis use of indoor spaces. Mm -hmm, sure. Now, what strikes me is, are we looking at, and this is crystal ball stuff here, but are we looking at within the next six months, a possible conflict, if you will, with a heat illness approach that uh, OSHA wants to attempt? Because I'll tell you that certainly down here in Florida, and I know we are two different parts of the country, but in sunny FLA, it gets hot here earlier than it gets hot where you are. And in not so sunny Wisconsin, we are wussier than you are when it comes to the heat. So our summers, which may not be as warm as yours, still pose similar hazards to those of us who are, whose blood is thicker. I don't think I'm looking at a ghost here when I see this. I, I think I see, because uh, I went and checked the heat illness page for OSHA today and compared it against this guidance, and I could see... On the one hand, OSHA says give your employees rest and shade, and they mention uh, perhaps getting inside a, uh, a company vehicle with air conditioning or going inside. And here, uh, the the guidance is don't go inside except for de minimis. So I think that's something to flesh out. You know, and I think the counsel to, to clients is that we need to be very careful not to, to force employees into the exemption category just to just in order to avoid having to comply with the ETS. I think that that's, that's high risk, high stakes bingo, as they used to say. Um, you know, if, 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 we, we don't want to run, a, to your point, Philip, we don't want to run afoul of one enforcement effort by OSHA by trying to avoid another enforcement effort by OSHA. That, that will defeat the purpose. Well, Eric, we've covered some, some hot issues to dovetail onto the next subject. Uh, I know we only have a few minutes here, but what's, what's typical one more subject you think that folks really ought to be thinking about right now. Let's cover that and then we'll close it out for this session. One of the things that a lot of clients have, have um, expressed concern about is the, the business impact, not necessarily the monetary impact, although everything boils down to, to money, right? Um, but the, the business impact of this standard. You know, if, if, a, if a company is located in an area in which there is a lot of small business competition, the legitimate fear is that if the large employer under the mandate of the ETS puts in place a program of the kind required, a lot of employees, well, first of all, a lot of folks who might apply for employment with that company aren't going to apply. They're going to apply to the smaller companies that don't require vaccination or testing, but that also the, the, the bigger companies will lose people to those smaller businesses. And that, that's, a, that's an important factor to consider in the calculus of whether to comply. And, and a lot of clients are saying, I can't afford to comply. Now, what's the expense, the potential expense of non-compliance? Because I know what the potential expense of compliance is. And that's a, that's a very difficult issue for a lot of our clients. And not just those in rural areas, for example, but even those in urban areas. Because right now the labor workforce is so thin, whatever the reason might be. Are you hearing the same thing? I, I am, you know, certainly, you know, look, we already have the labor shortage. We have, you know, uh, the pipeline issues and supply issues. And 
I think OSHA at one point said, well, we, we don't expect this to impact more than about one to 3% of the workforce. Well, I'm hearing that's a big deal. You know, one to 3% could be huge. And I think that that goes to, uh, you know, hopefully some input from the industry um, as this thing goes forward, because OSHA did say that they could modify as we go. In fact, they said that they were going, they were seeking, the solicitor said yesterday in an OSHA webinar that they're going to be seeking comment on whether it would be appropriate to expand the scope of the ETS to include employers of fewer than 100 employees. And by the way, on that note, there's another deadline, and that is the comment period, which ends on December 6th. Yeah, good point, Philip. I'm glad you raised that. Absolutely. This is, this is the time to marshal comments, and, and I mean written comments, for submission to OSHA. Right. Don't you agree? Oh, I agree. I mean, if you have, whether it's a, a large employer, small employer, industry association, uh, HR association, now's the time to, uh, to get in those comments. And, you know, I'm looking at the green button now, submit a formal comment, but do it by December 6th. <laughs> and we I've just, we, we have a lot of experience in, in assisting clients, both associations and individual companies in preparing comments like that. And we, you know, obviously we can give all sorts of input into that process uh, for clients who are interested to know more. Well, you raised, uh, you raised an issue that we won't address today, but I will at least tease our, our audience with it. And that is the issue of enforcement. That's an issue that, uh, as you know, I spend an awful lot of time in the field, uh, tragically with a lot of fatality cases. And so, you know, I know we, we all know that area so well. There's a lot of misunderstanding here about how OSHA can go about enforcing this ETS. So I think maybe in a future episode, we'll have to uh, address that and make sure that folks understand what the agency can and can't do when it comes to enforcing not just this, but any other standard. That's a, that's a, that'd be a great subject, uh, largely if only because OSHA today doesn't have any more compliance officers than it did before the ETS was published yesterday, right? Well, I, they don't, and I will not give names, but I will tell you anecdotally, I've had conversations with some friends that work for the agency and, and they're concerned about the resources required for this. So. Absolutely. I don't, know, I don't know what that means other than they're just concerned about the resources. So. Yeah, I've heard, I heard the same thing from fo folks within the agency, even today, same thing. Yeah, and I think they're gonna do the best job they can, but I, I think that what you're gonna see, and this is a, a teaser for the enforcement, is I think you may uh, perhaps see a more aggressive use of that enforcement by shaming strategy and we'll see where that goes yeah we will indeed I, I wonder too if we might not see a national emphasis program of some kind to implement this in a way that osha thinks it can deal with it best well you and i once wrote a, an article together on the first covid 19 national emphasis program and what i what i thought might happen is that national emphasis program which really did separate out by industry the risk levels uh, I didn't really see that carried forward here into this ETS. So do you perhaps think that national emphasis program will be updated after this ETS? Yeah, I, I'd be shocked if not only because unless OSHA just kind of, you know, uh, coattails inspections under the ETS in other inspections as, you know, in the, in the case of a complaint or a fatality or an amputation or whatever it happens to be, unless they went about it that way, they don't have the time or the resources, it seems to me, to focus attention just on COVID-19. And to be frank with you, in order to do it, they need a, an emphasis program anyway, right? Well, I think so. And, and you know, as I heard from one, um, you know, from one friend, again, I will not do anything to identify, but uh, the question was, how many of these fatality cases we're working, should we 
do we have to ignore to go focus on COVID inspections? And that's a real problem. And, and look, as a safety guy, and you're a safety guy, and I know we both care deeply about safety, that's something that worries me. Getting beyond the legal issues and the compliance issues is the resource issues also for the agency tasked with this uh, with this ETS, I think is a concern we all should share. Oh, and I, I know the agency, the folks, the boots on the ground anyway, do share it. They were just beginning to come back to some reflection of what had been before COVID-19 when the president made his announcement. And now they're back with this necessary laser focus on COVID-19 to, if you will, the, the, you know, the detriment of inspections of, of other things going on in the workplace. And I guess some employers might see that as a positive as a safety matter, I don't see that as a positive at all. Well, Eric, thank you for this first look at the ETS. I, hopefully our audience will uh, get some value from it. I know I did, and I always enjoy talking with you about these things. And we will be back. We will talk about enforcement issues. We will dive deeper into some of the issues, such as the, uh, the various expenses that must be borne and by whom. Uh, and the paid time off issues, we'll, we'll all digest that further and dive deeper. But for now, uh, thanks for joining us again on Dirty Steel Toe Boots. It's our OSHA podcast, OSHA-oriented podcast from Ogletree Deacons. I was happy to be joined today by my friend and colleague and the, the leader of our Workplace Safety and Health Practice Group, Eric Hobbs. Eric, thank you, sir. Philip, thanks so much for inviting me. I thoroughly enjoy these times with you. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.